If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, Revelation is the very last book, so you can take a look at it there. It will also be up on the screen. Revelation chapter 3. If you've been with us, you know we've been in a series called Red Letters, hearing Jesus' direct words to seven first century churches um, that were located in what is now modern day Turkey. They, these letters were literally carried on by mailmen of some sort, male women, I don't know, uh, to these churches that are now in Turkey, like on a mail route, right? And uh, it's interesting, a, a, a sentence that Jesus ends with, every letter you'd think he would start with, but he actually ends them, and it's this. He says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, that's what he says. And again, you'd think he'd say that up front, but at the end he's saying, basically, what I've said, I don't want you to miss it. These are really important things. Now, here's why I say that up front before we read the passage. Listen today for the voice of God. Like, do one thing for me. Just listen today for the voice of God. Like I would prefer you hear one thing from the voice of God rather than the thousands of words I say. It is infinitely more important that you would hear his voice today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, man, we are so, so very glad and honored that you are here with us. But let me say, you're not here by accident. It's not a mistake. It's not random. You're here because I believe God is gonna speak to you today. So listen for his voice, all right? So Revelation chapter three, starting in verse seven, this is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. And behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they'll learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. So Jesus, we just, we want to pause, and, and if anyone's just sort of rushed through the service to this moment, I just pray you'd, you'd, um, awaken our hearts, and kind of cause our hearts to be here, fully here, 
fully present, fully listening to all that it is that you want to say to us today. God, I pray you would keep me from saying things that would be harmful or unhelpful or untrue. And I pray that only what would come through would be the clarity and purity and authority and beauty of the word of God. Thank you for your book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for giving it to us. And now, Holy Spirit, would you set in motion the things you want to do inside of our hearts? We submit ourselves to you in this moment. And the whole church said together, amen. Okay, let's try it together. The whole church said together, amen. All right. Okay, so you guys, I just turned 50. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. So it is. It's a little awkward. It's a little bit like that moment. It feels a little bizarre and a little weird. I, I actually got uh, a mailer two days after my birthday from AARP. <laughs> it's like, how do they know? There's like some sort of secret society or club like, oh, he's in. Send him something. He'll give us money. And they offer free things if you pay the money. Again, that is uh, not good business, but it's how that works. So um, there's this theme I found that, that, that surfaced in sort of the lead up. And those of you who are kind of approaching my camp, and hey, good to meet you. Um, you've seen this theme happen in your birthday cards, right? And it's three words. You're really old, right? That's the theme that kind of comes. And Hallmark as a company is making millions off of making fun of people's age, millions. So I just want to read to you uh, some of my birthday cards uh, from my family, the people who are supposed to love me the most. <laughs> Here we go. From my oldest son. Keep in mind, I'm turning 50. 70. <laughs> it's good. It's real good. It's great that you're not slowing down, but give the rest of us a chance to catch up. Happy 70th birthday. <laughs> Real laughers. 10 good things about getting older. All 10 of them are real winners, but I'll just read a couple of them for time's sake. Number 10, it gives you the perfect excuse to forget things. Now this is true. This is actually true. Uh, you were supposed to help me move, weren't you? Oh yeah, I forgot. And it's like, it's okay, he's old. It's like, great. Uh, the other one, you can take bets on which part of your body will conk out next. And, and in the like table, dinner, family celebration, they actually did that. It's a, it's a real good time, you're back. Oh, you're right, it's my back. Uh, and then the capper really is from my lovely bride, Darcy. Uh, she gave me a card with three old guys golfing naked. <laughs> it's a family show. And here's the inside. And they say the hearing is the first to go. Go for it on your birthday. And this is what she writes. This just made me laugh, made me laugh because I can see you doing this. <laughs> As if like, hey, it's time to play golf. Let's just go naked. Just weird, good times. Okay, so right, there's just a bizarreness. There's, there's a weirdness to, to growing older. We're all there and it's all happening at the same pace. It's all, you're gonna reach me if you're not there yet. Um, but I was about to say, I'm winning. I'm beating you guys. 
who are younger than me, but there's this growing fear that I've sort of noticed rise in my heart over the the last several years. Um, And it's this, this fear, and I think it's common to more than just my age, I think it's wider spread than that, that that I'll just coast to the finish line. That the the real values of my heart um, won't be like white hot love for Jesus and obedience to him and and courage, Um, but it'll be the real values of my heart as ease and comfort and safety. And that I'll settle for nice. You know what I mean when I say settle for nice? You know, it's like a nice life with a nice family and a nice church, with a nice city where it's nice to be nice to the nice. Right? And not really going all out 100%. Questions that surface inside of me is, will I be fully obedient to Jesus no matter the cost? And am I willing to suffer for him? What if I lost family or friends or reputation? No, come what may, will I stand firm? And I think those are super common. What will my faith look like in 10, 20, 30 years? What will my life look like in my dying breath? Well, listen, Jesus is gonna speak directly to these kinds of questions in the letter to the church at Philadelphia. That's what he's doing here. If you want to know how Jesus defines a truly great church, you look at Philadelphia. It's the church that we want to be. And it's not because they're, you know, growing beyond belief or huge impact on their city. It's not because they have all kinds of civic influence or that kind of thing. You'd wonder about that, but that's not why he gives them absolute 100% commendation and no complaints whatsoever. It's one reason one reason alone, it's because of the way they've responded to their sufferings with faithfulness to Jesus. That's it. So if you were a Christian in this church, here are a couple things you've probably gone through. If you were ethnically Jewish, which many of them were, um, you would have been kicked out of your synagogue, disowned by family and friends. Life as you knew it has stopped. New life. Where do we go? They've been kicked out. You've been told that Jesus is a false Messiah. Also, like the rest of the churches, this letter was right at the beginning of the reign of the Emperor Trajan, 98 AD. And he made it illegal to be a Christian. If you're going down the road, right? get pulled over, not for speeding or texting, but because you were seen at church. That was the atmosphere to this church. Revelation was written to prepare these guys for this situation and it helped. How do we know? Because we have a historical account. There were six Christians lived in the city of Carthage, which in North Africa, just a little below where this area is. And uh, they stood before a judge as they were accused of being Christians. The judge's name was Saturninus. And here's the, the dialogue. Saturninus says, Swear now by the Lord, our emperor. And the men say, We have committed no wrong. We've committed no theft. When we buy something, we pay the tax on it. We do all this because we know our Lord 
who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and the emperor of all nations. Saturninus says, have a delay of 30 days and rethink this. They say, no, we're Christians. Saturninus says, since you have obstinately persisted, it is determined that you will be put to the sword. And the Christians say what we said this morning together. Thanks be to God. Now I want you to notice something. When their lives are completely on the line, they quote Revelation. They say, our king is not Caesar. Our king is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Here's the point. The things that were given to them helped them endure through a moment like that. I imagine them listening to this letter in some sort of similar context, right? And tears welling up in their eyes, knowing what they've gone through and relief giving and hope giving and life giving. It's the words of my king. Write to me. Write to my family. Listen, you and I are not facing torture today. We're not being threatened physically for our faith. But Jesus is going to give us three things about his character that are going to give us everything we need with whatever we're facing or whatever we will face that will help us become people who endure. So three things. You ready? You with me? All right. First, Jesus' sovereignty fuels faithfulness. The way Jesus describes himself in each of these letters is really significant to the actual experiences the people are having. And the same is true here. Jesus wastes no words. Three descriptions in verse seven. The first, holy. In Jewish culture, holy meant completely other. You didn't call someone holy besides God, he was holy, untouchable in his glory, in his life, in his beauty, holy. He's saying, in case there's any doubt, I am God. In case there's any doubt in the room, whether you like it or not, Jesus is God. It's one of many places in the New Testament we see Jesus, I am fully God, Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. That was important for them. Secondly, true, right? Jesus has been accused of being untrustworthy, of not being the true Messiah. He's saying, I'm genuine, I'm reliable. You can trust me. Same is true for us. And then it says he has the key of David who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. What does that mean? What's going on here? Well, this is a a reference back to Isaiah's time. And Isaiah had prophesied that there would be a new high priest. Eliakim was his name. And he was going to replace a really horribly corrupt priest. In Isaiah 22, he's going to describe Eliakim. He says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Here's why Jesus uses it here. These guys had gotten kicked out of their synagogue. They'd lost their community. They'd lost that, right? 
That door had been shut. They had been locked out. Jesus is saying he is the one who had absolute power to control entrance into the heavenly kingdom. They are his people. They need to know that. Then in verse eight, he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So the language of open door sometimes can refer to salvation in the New Testament. That's true in this context, right? It, it refers actually to the surprising success of the gospel message. Like in a season of time, right? In a given area with a group of people. That's what this is referring to. And I think it's gonna ref, it refers to a way that God is gonna rescue people in Philadelphia, like God is sovereignly saying, I'm gonna rescue people in this city, which he's saying about Oklahoma City as well. He has people that he wants to save in Oklahoma City in your work, right? Your neighborhoods, your families, he wants to rescue. And he gives actually a specific way that's actually gonna be played out. Verse nine, behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you. So we don't know what, what this actually looked like, but the people who'd most hated them, most excluded them, would realize that the Christians were loved by God. They would be vindicated. So what's it mean for us, his sovereignty fueling faithfulness? Well, some of you, have, uh, you've suffered a lot from family or friends or coworkers for being a Christian. Right? Maybe not physically, but maybe through rejection or ridicule or that sort of thing, or maybe even withdrawal. Some of you have prayed faithfully for friends or others through years. You've shared the gospel and they've just not budged. I can't promise that this scenario is going to happen here. Only, only Jesus knows who are his. But there is a kingdom principle at work here. Listen to it. Your suffering no matter how large or small, is never for nothing. And your prayers and your words always make a difference. There's nothing futile in the kingdom. So don't give up. Three suggestions I wanna give on open doors with those that we love. First, pray. So pray for those who don't know Jesus. Pray for them. If you don't do that, think of three people by name, and start praying for them. Even if it's for like 25 seconds, pray for them by name once a day. Pray for them. God hears our prayers. Second, love. Love. Um, we can't be hanging out with Christians all the time if we wanna experience open doors, right? If, if that's your life, your world, then just sort of realize it. Don't sink in shame around it. And join a gym, join a book club, right? If you're a lady, you got some kids, invite them, friends to a mom's group, like, if you are in a business, like invite somebody to lunch, ask them about their story, ask them questions, learn to ask good questions. Let's, let's love boldly. Third suggestion, um, tell, right? There is a quote uh, that I have sort of a love-hate relationship with. Um, it's by a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, uh, a Catholic monk from years gone by. And he said this, he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I totally get what he's saying. I don't think it's all horrible, right? He's saying, let's live the gospel. Let's be the gospel. Let's not 
right, cause people to deny the gospel by the way that we live our lives. True. But listen, the gospel has words. The gospel is words. If someone hadn't used words with you, you wouldn't be saved. It's true, right? It's like what I, you know, we say to our two-year-olds, like, use your words, right? I'm going to say to all of us, let's use our words, okay? Let's use our words, the gospel, our story. Let's use our words. It's hugely important. The elephant in the room of the American church is that we don't share the gospel. The elephant in the room of the American church is that we don't share the gospel. And I get that. I'm part of the American church. We are the American church. The fear of man is a real thing in my heart and in my life. But by the grace of God, may we be a gospel-sharing people with the people that we know and love. And if you want some practice runs to like build your gospel muscle, we have unbelievers always in this building on Sunday mornings. You know where they are? Downstairs in the nursery and kids' church. And on Wednesday nights in youth, you wanna share the gospel every week in small groups, we share the gospel with our kids and our students. Jump in. That's my pitch. <laughs> you just got it. You be share the gospel every single week with kids because that's what we do. And you can do that. Jesus has open doors for us to walk through with people. Um, my dad uh, wasn't a Christian and uh, a stoic, uh, a philosopher, an engineer, a humanist is what you might describe him in terms of his life. And uh, growing up, my parents were divorced and in, in, in his home, it was real explicitly clear. We don't talk about Jesus here. And so it was walking on eggshells, no question. I mean, it was a shut and locked door. And uh, our family over the years, um, who God graciously saved, extended family, um, we're just praying for him over the years. And we watched God slowly, particularly over the last couple of years, soften his heart. And when he got sick last year, um, we were able to spend a lot of time taking care of him and nursing him. And through that, we had even more opportunity to share the gospel. And you guys, this is just mind blowing. I can't believe that I'm standing here about to tell you this. A couple days before he died, he lost the ability to talk, but he could still interact. He could still hear and interact. And uh, my sister, who was so bold, she just said, do you know, Dad, that Jesus loves you. And he nodded, yes, which is nuts. And then she said, do you know, Dad, that Jesus wants to be your savior? And he nods, yes. I don't know what was going in on the inside of him, but I do know this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here and you're not a Christian, give your life to Jesus. He loves you. He is king. He is God. He, he may be wooing you. He may be working things. It may be hard. It may be beautiful, but you know he is after you and he's after you in love. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Open doors. He is sovereign. It fuels our faithfulness. Secondly, Jesus preserving love fuels faithfulness. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so what's going on here? There's a lot, right? What's the hour of trial mean? What's the whole world mean? Well, just to say up front, faithful Bible honoring Christians have seen this verse in different ways through the years, okay? But let me say what we see happening here. This promise meant something significant to these Christians in Philadelphia. It's not an abstract blessing. He was rewarding their faithfulness to the word he'd given them about his own patient endurance in suffering and telling them he'd protect them, not give them a magic escape pod to kind of jettison them out or remove them entirely. The real help and comfort here for them is that come what may, Jesus is committed to preserving our faith. Let me throw another piece into this. It's John 17, 15. It's the only other place in the New Testament where we see this little Greek phrase kept from in the New Testament. And Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying not that the Father physically remove them. And by the way, if you know your history, you know every single one was martyred for their faith in Jesus. But he's praying that the Father keep them from Satan's effort to destroy their spiritual life, which is absolutely what he did. And you see in verse 11, the bottom line, Jesus, I am coming soon to these suffering and struggling and beaten down Christians. He emphatically says, I'm coming for you. You will not lose. I win, so you win. Set all your hope on that future day. Hold fast, right? Your faith will be made sight. This is fuel for faithfulness. What's that mean then for us? Well, I want to speak to two groups of people. First, the patiently enduring. Maybe it's you enduring in your relationships, right? False accusations at work. Maybe this dark loneliness that's set inside your soul like a monster. You can't get rid of it. Maybe it's enduring, right? In your body, disease, there's cancer, there's migraines, there's something, right? That it's hidden. Or maybe it's church, Right? Let's just all say that. We're all kidding ourselves if we say this is all like easy peasy. Right? Maybe community group is hard. Maybe the ministry you serve in is hard. Maybe it's hard to be here right now because of something you're going in. Maybe that's true. But you've chosen to obey the call of Jesus in all of that. Maybe you wouldn't even say you're patiently enduring. Maybe you say like impatiently enduring. What, what would it mean to you if Jesus looked into your eyes and with the fire and the kindness that, that only a resurrected king can bring, and he said, you have patiently endured. You have patiently endured. You have you've patiently endured. 
I will protect you. The evil will not win you. I will keep you. What would that mean? I think of Romans 8, 31, where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you think if your life and world is hard, I mean, like I can think of lots of people, Paul, ready? You want my list? People who are against me? I think Paul means if God is for us, who can successfully be against us? Meaning if God's on your side and you're suffering as a Christian, not for being a jerk and you've sinned against all kinds of people and you're expecting this and that, right? That's not what we're talking about here, but suffering as a Christian, then you win because Jesus wins. It's not about being liked, like the more faithful you are, then more respected and admired you expect to be. It's actually maybe the opposite. But if God is for you, no one can successfully be against you. How do you know that's true? Look at the next verse, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He points to the cross, the cross. Jesus' blood guarantees. He keeps us. He preserves us. And he ends it with 38 and 39. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second group of people I want to speak to is the doubting, the doubting. Some of you are caught in between what feels like an unendurable God and life without him. Because of the pain in your heart, you, it, you feel stuck. You may not want life without him in your redeemed heart, but moving towards God is just hard. Um, you're wrestling with deep questions around the goodness of God, maybe you, the recycled evil you see right, in the world or in your own soul. Um, there may be deep heartbreak that informs this. There may just be a thousand little paper cuts over time, unhealed, right? But your heart is sick. It feels that way. And you're, if you're honest, you're tired, maybe even like exhausted being here this morning. You may even feel like the silence of God is killing you. What would it mean to you if Jesus came to you and said, though all of this is going on, you have patiently endured. You have patiently endured. I'll keep you. I'll protect you. The evil will not win you. God for those of you who are doubting, he has not left you. He has not left you. You know how I know? Because the one who was forsaken for you guarantees that you have not been forsaken. Years ago in crisis of faith in my own life, really questioned all this, really went into a dark hole. There were two things that helped kind of pull me out. They were real significant. One was not only had Jesus suffered for me in my sin, paid my penalty, but he also suffered with me. He knew how it felt and it felt real, real bad. And by sitting in that and looking into the eyes of a bloodied Jesus for me, shifted something. The second thing that happened was I realized that I'd judged God. I'd straight up judged God. 
in my pain, in my blindness, in my confusion. I judged him, judged him as unfeeling, abandoning, heartless, stoic. And I had to repent. And if you're the way I have been, repent. I've judged you, forgive me. I wanna know your goodness even though I have a whole lot of badness going on. C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters, um, fictional dialogue between two demons. And I know that sounds odd. It's a great book, pick it up. They're talking about how to take down Christians and Screwtape is like the boss demon and Wormwood is like the student demon, right? And they're having this conversation about uh, like, the best strategy and when their strategies are in danger. And he says this, he says, be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will. That means God's will looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished. Ask why he has been forsaken and still obeys. May we be people who still obeys in ruthless trust of our King. So Jesus' sovereignty fuels faithfulness. His preserving love fuels faithfulness. And then there's a third thing. We're gonna see it here in verse eight. I know that you have but little power, yet you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. So for them, little power, what's little power mean? Well, Jesus is saying, I know you're tiny. You're the smallest of the seven churches. I know you're counted worthless. I know you're not any money or influence. I know no one likes you. It's like, wow, good morning, Jesus. You know, thanks a lot for that shot in the arm. It's like, whoa, Jesus isn't giving sort of this Stuart Smalley, you're good enough, you're be, you know, smart enough, and gosh dang it, people like me kind of thing. This is him giving a blessing, saying, I know that you have little power. He applauds their lack. Third point, Jesus' pride. Jesus' pride in your obedience fuels faithfulness. I struggled with that language of pride, which tells you something a little bit about my heart maybe, but I think that's what they would have felt. Their king was proud of them. They'd kept his word and not denied his name under the most horrific of circumstances. That is something that all of us long for. Listen, here's the point. Our God is a pleasable God. Not like the God of other religions, right? Where it's never enough. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough. You can't be enough. That is not the gospel because he has done the enough. He has done the enough. He is enough. Now we get the chance to be his kids. You feel the freedom of that. Feel the freedom of that. You get the chance to be his kids. You can make him proud of you, right? Whenever we obey, he's proud of his kids, whenever, but especially in suffering. And that's not a legalism thing at all. That's a Christian thing. So if you feel weak this morning, right? Under-resourced, overwhelmed, um, Jesus applauds you if you turn to him 
right? Not to yourself and not in self-pity. This isn't him applauding self-pity. That's just a noble form of wounded pride. And I know it because that's one of my defaults. This is him blessing radical dependence. When you're weak, I'm strong. So you have to get this if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus values different things in the world. What matters to him is not impressiveness or coolness or cleverness. He values faithfulness to him, which applies to us as a church, right? Size does not equal success. God isn't against growth. He wants people to be saved. He wants people to be discipled. That's totally true, right? But doesn't automatically equal Success. In fact, we can see from this passage, it's weak people trusting God that make for strong churches. Some of you here, um, you're in hard marriages, really painful, difficult places, but you're chosen to follow Jesus. Like Jesus is proud of you. You've kept his word. You've not denied his name. Some of you are in middle school. You're in high school, right? You've been ignored. You've been unfriended. You've been un- uninvited right? Jesus' words matter more than theirs, way more than theirs. Some of you have chosen purity, right? Not because you're a prude, not at all, just because there is a greater love, a greater desire than your body's desires, and it's the love of your Savior for you. You know, there's different kinds of suffering that's in the room, different intensities, but you know, remember in high school chemistry class, something called, called like a Bunsen burner? Remember that? I don't know who Mr. Bunsen is, but he's the only guy I know that got a flame named after him. So Bunsen burner, a little tiny flame, right? We would compare the martyrs and persecuted that like level 10 bonfire, right? The, the suffering you might be in may be more like Bunsen burner constantly on your backside. But suffering hurts no matter what. Don't minimize it. Look to the passages in the scripture like this to find Jesus as your reward, as your goal, as your joy in the middle of it. Okay, so here's his word to us as we begin to wrap up. Notice the little phrase, I have loved you. I have loved you. The love of Jesus for us is the game changer, the game changer, because it's not our love for Jesus that defines us, because that can wax and wane. It's his love for us that defines us, right? It's his relentless affection for us that we have to um, hold to, that we've got to enjoy, that we've got to revel in, that we've got to rest in, that we've got to feed off of tenaciously, His love is better than life, right? That fuels our faithfulness. Okay, so in conclusion, massive, what Lewis would call an unblushing promise of reward. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. A pillar, being made a pillar means you'll never leave God's kingdom. You are permanent. And then this other promise. I don't know how you feel about tattoos. I don't have any, but I've seen a few around here. 
Whether you like tattoos or not, you're going to get one. And here it is. All right, maybe you'll be able to choose where it goes on your body, but Jesus is going to write some things on your body. Here they are, three things. Number one, God's with an apostrophe, right? Which means possession. You're his. First line, top. Next, your new home, right? Heaven. In case you get lost, like these are your dog tags, right? God's heaven, your address. And then for good measure, the name of Jesus, just because that's the name that our hearts long for. That is as secure and as beautiful as we can get. And that's what fuels our faithfulness. Sovereignty is keeping and is pride in us.